morning, everyone. My name's Andrew, and uh, I uh, attend the 10am service here with my wife, Felicity, and kids. And I've been asked um, to, to speak to you this morning on the doctrine of the Trinity as we work through this series uh, in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, so why don't we pray together? I have, there's an outline for you. Um, we'll be sort of looking a little bit at John 17, so you might want to keep that open. And, uh, and in a second, we'll get going. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to reflect on the wonder of your very nature. Please uh, help us to do so with clarity and with a sense of awe and gratitude that you've drawn us to know you, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that um, we would be inspired by the wonderful privilege of being drawn into this relationship. And we pray all of these things through the one who gives us access, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I've been asked to, uh, as I say, preach to you on the doctrine of the Trinity today. The Trinity, or the triune identity of God, is, of course, a uniquely Christian teaching that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. Uh, But as a teaching, straight away it poses a couple of major problems for the preacher and the listener, I think. Uh, The first is when you go looking for a verse or a passage that teaches directly about the Trinity, you're not really going to find all that many. And that's actually one of the reasons why this doctrine has been rejected at various points throughout church history. But the fact that it doesn't sort of rise to the surface all that often in the Bible doesn't mean that it isn't always down below, right at the foundation of everything the Bible teaches. I've heard it compared to the doctrine that the earth is round and that the sun is the centre of the solar system and that the earth rotates around the sun. Now, all kinds of scientific claims and theories rest on that doctrine, on that axiom, whether it's in astronomy or physics or geology or biology, a whole lot depends on that truth and assumes that truth, but these days at least you won't find too many scientists trying to prove that that a round earth goes around the sun over a period of 365 days. It's just assumed knowledge. Once upon a time, of course, it wasn't, but it is today, and it's a bit like that, I think, with the Trinity. It's assumed everywhere in the Bible and I'd say absolutely everything hangs on the truth of this doctrine. But it doesn't rise to the surface all that much and so to find the doctrine we typically have to go digging around a little bit behind the surface of the text. So that's the first challenge. But even if we can find some passages where the uh, teaching rises close to the surface, it doesn't matter because we can't understand it anyway. (laughs) See, it doesn't matter how smart or godly you are, this is a doctrine that just bursts at the seams of everything that we know and every category that we have. Uh, Jim Packer says, uh, and his book um, was referred to earlier, the, uh, his, his great book, which I just can't remember off the top of my head, the most... <laughs> thank you, knowing God. The most, he said, the most difficult thought that the human mind has ever been asked to handle is the doctrine of the Trinity. The most difficult thought that the the human mind has ever been asked to handle. Um, And as someone who gets to teach students about the Trinity from time to time, he's not wrong. So what hope have we got? 
In fact, teaching about the Trinity to my students is one thing, and actually, at one level, it's not such a hard doctrine to state. I can say, well, the doctrine of the Trinity is simply that there is one God who has three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, not three parts to God, but three different persons who are all equally the one God. It's not hard to state at all, and sometimes we just rattle it off like that in the words of the Creed. Not so much the Apostles' Creed, interestingly, but more so the Nicene Creed uh, that we say from time to time. But trying to explain it is another matter. It can feel a little bit like you're trying to explain a square circle. And any illustration that we come up with is bound to be wrong. People have tried. You might have heard of some of them. The Trinity is like ice, water and steam. One substance, three modes of the same thing. Wrong. That's a heresy called modalism. The Trinity is like a three-leaf clover or a three-piece pie, one substance carved up into three parts. Or I heard another one this morning. The Trinity is like tea with milk and sugar. (laughs) Wrong. (laughs) That's a heresy called tritheism, three parts adding up to one drink. Now, all of that might seem a little silly, but as I say to my students, the Trinity is so hard to understand and so hard to talk about that it's actually much easier to slide into one or other of those heresies than you might imagine. And so an awful lot of ink has been spilled trying to get this doctrine right. And even today, professional theologians still throw bricks at each other because they're still working hard to get it right. And given this is God we're talking about, and everything depends on God, surely, then isn't this really important that we get it right? And yes, it is. So if stating it is relatively easy, explaining it is another thing. It's very tricky, and yet at the same time, so much is at stake, and we've got to work hard to get it right. But what about preaching the doctrine of the Trinity, as I've been asked to do this morning? I mean, I could give you a lecture. Yes, it's hard, but I've been thinking about it for a while. I'm paid to do that. And I could probably do a reasonable job. But in preparing this sermon, I've been thinking a lot about what it means to preach this doctrine. Not to give a lecture explaining the doctrine. That might be a valuable thing for us to do some other time, but that's not my job here this morning. I have to preach it. In other words, I want to show you what difference this makes to our lives and to everything. And in some ways, that's actually much harder again, but I've got to tell you, it's a whole lot more exciting. The Christian writer and apologist C.S. Lewis, and I'll be referring a bit to him this morning because he's quite helpful on this, he says that the difference between the Trinity and the world in which we live and the world of our own human thoughts and imagination and our understanding is a little bit like the difference between a three-dimensional object, you know, a cube, for example, and a two-dimensional picture. No matter how hard you try, you can't squeeze a three-dimensional object like a cube into a picture. You can draw a picture of a cube, but it's two-dimensional. You can take a photo of a cube, but it's two-dimensional. And so once it's a picture or a photo or a painting, it's not a cube anymore. It might give you a reasonably good impression, a two-dimensional impression, but it's not the three-dimensional reality. And the truth is... We really can only talk about the Trinity in two dimensions, which is to say we 
we might be able to get a reasonably accurate impression, but it's impossible for us to get our heads around the real thing. And you might say, as C.S. Lewis asked, well, what's the point of even trying to get an impression and trying to talk about a three-person God if we're never going to get our heads around it? And he says, well, actually, there isn't much good in just talking about it at all. But what if that three-dimensional God has broken into our two-dimensional world, broken onto the two-dimensional canvas in such a way that we human beings can actually come into contact with the beauty and the power and the brilliance of that three-dimensional life? Well, that's another thing altogether. And I can hardly think of anything more wonderful and exciting to talk about than that. This morning, all I want us to do is really just get a glimpse of that brilliance and the difference it makes to our lives and the difference it makes to everything. It's only going to be a glimpse. But after that long introduction, let's have a go. Well, this passage that that was read out by Ellen before is from John 17. It's one of those very few places in the New Testament where the doctrine of the Trinity actually rises pretty close to the surface. It's an extraordinary moment, actually. It's a prayer that Jesus prayed, quite possibly the prayer he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane just the night before he died, just after he'd eaten his last meal with his disciples. And in this prayer, we get to eavesdrop a little on the remarkable relationship that Jesus has with his heavenly Father. But the thing that makes this prayer really extraordinary is that it's not just a conversation between God and a man who's about to die on the cross. No, what we have in this prayer is a little window into eternity because here Jesus speaks in terms that draw us up into the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. And we get a little glimpse, an impression, if you like, of what that relationship looks like on the inside in eternity and not just on the outside while Jesus is on earth. So let's look at it. Verse 1, Jesus prays, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Yes, that's happening now, but it's also been happening in eternity, even before the world began. Verse 4, I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. And what kind of relationship is that eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. It's a relationship of mutual giving and receiving. We didn't read verse 10, but look at verse 10. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. Or verse 21, you are in me and I am in you. And what are they giving each other? Verse 1, verse 4, verse 24, glory. Verse 24, Father, I want them to see the glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So for all eternity, Father, Son, have been so wrapped up in this exchange, this loving exchange of love and glory to one another that there is a oneness, a unity to that communion that is impossible to divide. In fact, theologians have rightly understood that this oneness of communion between the Father and the Son also has a personal name. And his name is the Holy Spirit. 
Just a bit before this prayer, as Jesus was talking with his disciples, he mentions the Spirit quite a bit. The Spirit of truth, the advocate the Father will send in the Son's name by the Son's authority, if you like. And he too will glorify the Son by taking what belongs to the Son and making it known. In other words, the oneness of the eternal giving and receiving between the Father and the Son is a oneness that has a personal name and his name is the Holy Spirit. We can get a little sense of what that means. I think it's very imperfect, of course, when we talk about a collection of human beings in relationship, in communion with one another, a family, a club, a football team. We talk about the spirit of that family or the spirit of that team, a sort of personality, if you like. But, of course, course it's not a real person. It's only a little bit like a person. Yes, there is a kind of spirit that brings people together, a spirit of oneness, but because it's not a personal spirit, the oneness or the communion that forms between people never quite lives up to what we'd like it to be. And so in our human relationships, we tend to get caught on the horns of a dilemma. So on the one hand, when I was at school, um, the headmaster and the school captain, they used to always talk about the school spirit. And I've got to tell you, I hated it. It felt stifling and oppressive and I didn't want to be a part of it so I rebelled against it. I wasn't a kind of pot-smoking rebel. I was a sort of passive-aggressive rebel. So when I was asked to be a prefect, I just said no (laughs) because I wanted to be an individual because I didn't feel like this school spirit had room for a quirky kid like me. And so... Very often, isn't it? It's like that, isn't it? When human beings form a community, there's a kind of a stifling oneness where it feels like there's almost no room to breathe, no room for a person to be themselves, so that the genuine kind of communion that's sort of there between persons is threatening to dissolve into a kind of a soup. But then at the other end, well, there is communion, but the trouble is it's not quite as close as we'd like it to be, not quite close enough. So how does the Bible describe a marriage right back in Genesis 2 in the beginning? A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now, naturally speaking, that's the closest the two human beings can ever get to each other. But imagine the best marriage the world has ever seen. There has to have been one at least. <laughs> now, normally... You know, two human beings, there you are, think of it, the best human marriage that's ever been, utterly devoted to each other, utterly at one in mind and heart, never a disagreement, utterly happy, utterly fulfilled, never a dull moment, always a twinkle in the eye, utter marital bliss all the time. You know it doesn't exist. But even if it did exist, it would always be sort of threatening to unravel, wouldn't it? Why? Well, simply because when two people, two people are never so one, even the closest marriage, two people are never so one that they so completely understand each other. And because they don't completely and they can never completely understand each other, you can never be sure that the other person is always, only ever going to act in ways that will bring you happiness and joy. That's the trouble with human community. There's, there's, there's a kind of oneness, 
But because it's not ultimately a personal oneness, it's always walking a line between being too suffocating or too distant. But what if that spirit of oneness was a person, a person who knew the other two persons inside out, who was so thoroughly devoted to their mutual delight and happiness And not only that, who possessed all the power and all the wisdom and all the understanding needed to bring that joy about so that there'd be no unrealised potential in their relationship, no potential for any greater joy, certainly no potential for anything less, no potential for any misunderstanding or unmet expectations or shame or regret or boredom, but only ever unbroken pure and perfect love and delight all the time. Well, then we'd have the Trinity, a triune communion that we call God, Father, Son, eternally wrapped up in the perfect personal communion of the Holy Spirit, so one, so united in nature that it is impossible for them to be divided and yet so distinct as to be three persons, in genuine communion. That is God. And that's what makes Christianity different from every other religion. You think it's important to believe in a God of love, a God who is eternally and essentially love? Well, you have to believe in the Trinity. In Eastern religions, God is an impersonal force and therefore love and relationships and communion, ultimately it's an illusion that you have to escape. In unipersonal religions, Unitarian religions, God couldn't have loved, think about it, God couldn't have loved before there was a world outside of him because there was nothing or more to the point, no one to love. Only a Christian can say that right at the heart of reality is a living dynamic activity of perfect glorious love that has been going on forever, the triune God. And you think, well, if that's been going on forever in the life of God, why on earth would a God like that create a vast universe, a world, and a world that's populated with billions of human beings? He certainly didn't need it to make him happy. There's never been a dull moment in the eternal life of God. He didn't need the worship. He didn't need the adoration. He didn't need the love. So what's in it for him? And the answer is, the only thing that's in it for him is what he delights to give. See, when human beings start to get close to one another and besotted with one another, what normally happens? Well, normally they start to become like one of those motels with a no vacancy sign around there, sign up there. Sorry, no more room, we're full. We haven't got capacity to welcome another person into our little closed circle of oneness. Well, God is the opposite. God is so full to the brim of love that there's always room for the other, always a vacancy for that which is not God. In other words, the only reason a God like that would create a world like this is not to find joy but to give it. Not to find love but to give it out of the infinite fullness of his own heart. It's as if all the love and wisdom and power and glory that the Father has eternally lavished on the Son is so full to the brim that it cannot but spill over into a world of their making. 
And you know what that means? Well, look at the world around you. And you think, you know, you think of all of its glory and all of its beauty and all of its intricate wisdom and all of its diversity, all of its awe-inspiring brilliance. Think of anything in creation that has the capacity to bring you joy and delight. What is it? A sunset, an ocean, the ocean, a painting, a piece of music, a person, whether animate or inanimate, all of it is just a finite token of the glory and delight that the Father has eternally lavished on the Son in the power of the Spirit. That's where it comes from, all of it. Every good and perfect gift is from above, James says, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Every good and perfect gift, in other words, is a kind of doorway through which we can enter into the Father's eternal goodness. And yet, of course, the trouble is we don't really believe that. The door is wide open, but we don't walk through it, every single one of us. And if there's anything wrong with the world, if there's any unhappiness in our lives, if there's any lack of joy or any emptiness, that's the reason why. There's no other reason. As one writer has put it, we're like lost children. Remember the prodigal son? We're like lost children searching for love in faraway places, desperately hoping that we can find there what we fear we've been missing out at the hands of our Heavenly Father. A career, a person, our children, our hobbies, our renovations, our holidays, our retirements. None of them necessarily bad things in themselves. All of them actually doorways into the Father's goodness. But when you concentrate on the door frame (laughs) rather than walking through the door, no wonder there's disappointment. You know, there's lots of nice things you can do with sand, but you can't build a house on it. Look, we haven't finished with the Trinity and the story gets even better, a whole lot better. Because, you see, come back to John 17. Jesus is praying for the Father's glory. Glorify the Son that your, the, your Son may glorify you. But notice the little phrase I skipped over right at the beginning of the chapter, verse 2, uh, before verse 2. Um, it's there in verse 1. Yes, it's there in verse 1. Jesus is talking, notice, what is he talking about? He's talking about an hour. Father, the hour has come. An hour when he will be glorified. Yes, up in eternity there's always been an eternal exchange of glory within the triune God. But Jesus is here on earth and he says there is an hour when what is eternally true of the Father and the Son will be visible on earth in a way that the world has never seen before, even in all of creation, in all of its amazing beauty and wonder and diversity in a way even greater than that and in a way that will never be surpassed, an hour of glory. What is he talking about? Well, throughout John's Gospel, Jesus mentions this hour many times and for a long time as we move through Jesus' ministry, he keeps saying, my hour is not yet here. My hour has not yet come. But then in chapter 12, all of that changes. And Jesus says, the hour has come. 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what's he talking about? Well, of course, he's actually talking about his own death, the hour of his death. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He's talking about his death. The hour when the Son of Man will be lifted up, lifted up on a cross. An hour of unsurpassed glory. And you think, that can't be right. What on earth is glorious about the cross? Think of the thorns, think of the nails, think of the spear through Jesus' side, think of the insults, think of the blood. Where's the glory in that? It's gruesome, it's shameful. In the ancient world, it was as shameful and ugly a picture as you could get. Even the prophet Isaiah says as much. He had no beauty or a majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, like one from whom people hide their faces. And yet, Jesus says, this is an hour of triune glory that will never be surpassed on earth. Because you see, as C.S. Lewis puts it again, when Jesus was crucified, he was doing in the wild weather of his outlying provinces that which he had done at home in glory and gladness. See what that means? In eternity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have only ever been pouring out eternal glory and delight upon one another. But what does that glory look like when it comes into contact contact with the wild weather of a sinful world? Well, when you think about it, it really should consume us, shouldn't it? When the holy and pure divine glory comes into contact with the wild weather of our sin, it really should consume us in a white-hot blaze of divine wrath and judgment but it doesn't because instead it consumes his son all the way to a shameful death on the cross think about that for a second the old puritan john flavel says consider the eternal matchless happiness of the triune god consider the intimacy and oneness of the persons Consider the constancy of their delight. Imagine the greatest intimacy two human beings have ever known and consider how much infinitely greater this is than even that and then just bask in astonishment that the eternal son was prepared to enter into the exact infinite opposite of all of that by taking on flesh, dying on a cross, bearing its shame and taking the divine judgment we deserve. Why? So that we who only deserve to be banished into the outer darkness of divine judgment might instead be drawn into the eternal brilliance of the Father's love, the the love the Father has lavished onto his Son that has forever captivated the heart of his Son for all eternity. I promise you this is the greatest display of divine glory that the world will ever see. What does selfless love look like on the inside for the triune God? Well, we'll never really know, actually, but we can say, as we've said, that it consists in this eternal triune exchange of giving and receiving glory and joy. But what does that selfless divine love look like on the outside? 
Well, that we can know. Jesus says in this prayer, verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Remember what um, God said to Adam right back in the beginning. We've been looking at Genesis, so you should remember. Uh, And those of you who are married, you should definitely remember this. What did God say to Adam right back in the beginning in the garden in Genesis 2? It's not good for man to be alone. I will make for you a suitable helper. Well, do you know what? That's not really about Adam and Eve in the end. It's not even about human marriages. It's about this. Another old Puritan I... Don't always quote Puritans, but I've, you know, I was getting on a roll this morning. Another old Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, he puts it like this. He says, When the eternal son came into the world, he condescended, he stooped to the very laws of bridegrooms. He says, it is in the, It's the manner of bridegrooms when they have made everything ready in their father's house, then to come themselves and fetch their brides and not to send for them by others, because it is a time of love. Love descends better than it ascends, and so does the love of Christ, who indeed is love itself. Therefore he comes down to us himself. I will come again and receive you to myself, says Christ, so that where I am you may be also. And he's thinking very much of this very verse. 20, verse 24 of chapter 17. See what, see what Goodwin's saying? That's what this prayer is all about. That's what the cross is all about. It's the heavenly bridegroom descending in love for his bride. As Goodwin goes on to say, it's as if Jesus is saying, the truth is I cannot live without you. I shall never be quiet until I have you where I am that we may never part again. That's the reason of it. Heaven shall not hold me, nor my Father's company even, if I have not you with me. That's what he's praying here. My heart is so set upon you. And if I have any glory, you shall have part of it too. Did you hear that? Jesus is saying heaven will not be the same without you. Even the Father's company will not be the same without you. It is not good for me to be alone. I want them to be with me also, to enter into my eternal joy, into that blessed communion that is the triune God. And if you want the proof, look at the cross. Well, what does all this mean as we close? (laughs) It means so much more than we can say, of course, but here's just a couple of things. Negatively, it means that if we're going to enter into this eternal joy of that selfless love, well, our self has to die. It has to. There's no other way. What does our culture say? You've got to be true to yourself. You know, people are so desperate for authenticity, to be original, 
People so desperately want to try their, find their true selves, don't they? And, you know, I want to be an individual who's going to make a difference in the world. I want to be true to myself. And so what do, what do they do? What do we do? Well, we rush headlong into all kinds of quests. You know, I go to university. I try and carve out a career. I get passionate about the climate or some latest political clause. I try to find love. I try to do my bit for the next generation. I try to see the world. All of those things are fine. All good things, but guess what? Even if you're reasonably successful at doing those things and achieving those things, that's exactly what everybody else is doing. So you want to find your true self, but the trouble is, as Lewis again memorably puts it, if you're, you're not nearly as original as you think you are, you're not nearly so much of a person as you think you'd like to be, most of the stuff you call you can very easily be explained in terms of forces that are outside your control, your genes, your upbringing, your neighbours. Jesus says, whoever wants to find their life in the end will lose it. And you'll lose it quite simply because you're cutting yourself off from the selfless love and life that is the beating heart of the one who is at the very centre of the universe. And Jesus warns you, you're going to end up eternally alone and forlorn. But whoever lets go of their life, in other words, whoever lets go of the self with all of its quests and let it dies and walks through the doorway that is called Jesus Christ will truly find themselves because they will enter into the very life and unspeakable joy that the love the Father has eternally lavished on the Son in the perfect communion of the Spirit, a love that no universe, no matter how great, could ever and vast could ever contain. And guess what? It's only through entering this triune life that all the suffocating oneness and impersonal oneness, as well as all that terrible distance that we so often find spoils our human relationships on earth, will finally be overcome. Because when you enter into this perfect triune communion, you'll never be more of a person never more perfectly and uniquely yourself, but at the same time, never at more at one with God in Christ and never more at one with the new humanity that God is drawing into this love through his bridegroom. But I've got to warn you, if you surrender yourself to this son, you're surrendering yourself to a bridegroom who will not stop at half measures to get you into a fit state for that glory. He's not going to cease until he takes every spot and every wrinkle out of the face, off the face of the, of the spouse, of the bride he loves. He's going to get you into such a state of such glory that you cannot now even imagine and that process will be long and at times painful. It's not just going to be putting crowns and caps on our teeth. He's going to be pulling them out. It's not just going to be taking the odd branch off here and there. He's going to be pulling trees out. The old self with all its quests has to die. That's what we're in for. But listen again to the prayer of the one who has been eternally wrapped up in the love and delight of his father. Father, it is not good for me to be alone. I want them to be where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Wow. 
Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we listen to these words of the Lord Jesus, your eternal Son, who came into this world to die this shameful death on our cross. And it staggers us to think that what he did for us in giving up his glory was all for our sake to draw us into the glory that he had with you in the power of the Spirit, in the oneness of the Spirit for all eternity. Father, we struggle to get our heads around just how awesome a prospect this is and we are so far too easily content with what this world can offer. Please forgive us. Please help us to be people who long to be drawn into this communion, that we might sense its wonder, we might sense its freedom and its power and long for the day when we will see the Lord Jesus and be transformed into his perfect likeness and enter into that joy for all eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.